lawyers are uniquely positioned to understand and influence outcomes. And in fact, I think Brexit is a chance for lawyers, be they in-house or out-house, to really shape and have input into the strategic direction of their organizations. Because this is not like 2008. It is a political act with legal consequences, and it is the legal implications which will shape many of the outcomes as yet unknown uh, from Brexit. Now, obviously, to lead thinking and, have in, and to have input into the direction of your organizations, we have to have an understanding of the likely future direction of change. And that's what we will try to generate today. Now, everybody knows that the extent of change is uncertain. It will emerge slowly as the political direction stabilizes in the UK and in the EU. Change will also be incremental. But even though things are uncertain and even though change will be incremental, I think it's possible to see now some likely areas of change and some things that need to be done now in terms of planning, in terms of identification of options. Even if you're going to pause action now, I think from a legal function perspective, the identification of issues and the identification of options is, is key. So what we will do today is we'll begin with a series of presentations across practice areas from nine Mason Hayes and Curran partners. They will be about seven minutes long, and we will conclude with the view from the UK. And I'm very pleased to have with us this morning John O'Hearn, who is a partner in the international law firm Jones Day, one of the top 10 law firms in the world. For those of you unfamiliar with Jones Day, it's primarily a US firm, but it's really a global firm now. It has a very significant presence in the UK, in the EU, and throughout the rest of the world. John brings a unique perspective because he is a partner in Jones Day. Uh, he has worked in Bahrain, he's worked in Singapore, and he's been in the UK for the last 12 years. His focus area is financial regulation, but his unique perspective, of course, derives from the fact that he's Irish born and Irish trained and Irish qualified. So that's the way we'll run it. But before we move to our first speaker, I do want to address one bedrock piece that didn't fall into any practice area, so it was given to me. And that is the legal mechanics of Article 50. And with apologies for being slightly anarchy in how we've gone about this, we've actually put the entire text of Article 50 in your pack. Because I think as lawyers it's important to understand how that works legally. And I'm just going to say four things about it. First, the member state who leaves the EU does so in accordance with their own constitutional requirements. And there is huge controversy in the UK in relation to what those requirements are. And if you follow some of the media and blogging on this, the controversy revolves around whether or not an act of the UK Parliament is required to serve the Article 50 notice, or whether the Prime Minister can do it in reliance on the royal prerogative. Now that is going to be a matter of UK constitutional law, always a murky issue, particularly when you don't have a written constitution. So that's the first thing to watch for. 
Um, the second issue arising in relation to Article 50 is, and, and this is probably what underpins the EU's current negotiating stance, where they say, no informal talks. We'll have talks when you serve the notice, but no informal talks first. That's their current position. And what probably underpins that is, once you serve the Article 50 notice, that's it. That's unsurprising, right? But it goes on, and you'll see in subsection 5 of Article 50, if you want to come back in, you have to apply again under Article 49. And it's unsurprising that that's it, because otherwise there'd be an incentive to serve the notice, see how you get, got on in the negotiations, and if you didn't like it, withdraw the notice. So that doesn't appear to be open to you. So you simply serve the notice, and once you fire that shot, you can't take it back. The third thing I wanted to flag is the dynamic on the EU side. So the EU's approach to the negotiations is that its position gets approved by a qualified majority of the Council with the consent of the European Parliament. So there will be two sets of politics at play, nation-state politics at the Council level and representative politics at the EU Parliament level. It's just important to bear that dynamic in mind as the EU negotiating position emerges. And the fourth and final point I want to make about Article 50 is that the disapplication of the treaties is automatic two years after the notice is given. Lots of people have written about that, but as lawyers, what's the negotiation consequence of that? And the negotiation consequence of it is that it creates what I call a classic hostage negotiation scenario, i.e., meet my demands by noon or you'll have a dead body on your hands. And a hostage negotiation situation creates massive pressure as the deadline looms. And many commentators have noted that while nobody will want an automatic disapplication of the treaties because of the mutual damage it will inflict, it probably hurts the UK a lot more than the EU in the short term. So that fact of the automatic ending of the negotiation period probably does limit the UK's negotiating scope to a certain extent. So that's all I want to say about the legal basis of Article 50. Of course, politics can trump law at any stage. But insofar as negotiations proceed on that legal basis, I think as lawyers it's important to understand the dynamic and understand how the legal bedrock could influence the outcome of the negotiations. So that's all I have to say. You're very welcome. And our first speaker is my partner, Robert McDonough. Thank you, Declan. Um, in the next couple of minutes, I'm just going to talk about data protection, the implications of Brexit, and what it means for you. The single biggest issue arising from Brexit is that data exports or transfers of data from the EU to the UK is going to get much more complicated. When the US safe harbor was revoked, it was all over the news. And that's because it made data transfers to the US much more difficult. Well, Brexit's just the same. It's going to make data transfers to the UK much more difficult. This means that every single time that you're going to transfer data to a counterparty in the UK, you're going to need to assess whether one of a number of alternative mechanisms are satisfied. Each of those mechanisms have their own nuances and in certain cases present their own difficulties. In the short to medium term, companies are likely to continue to try and rely upon, are, are likely to rely upon binding corporate rules or the European Commission model contractual clauses. 
The binding corporate rules are essentially an intergroup agreement under which all the group companies agree to comply with equivalent rules to the European data protection rules. But to get binding corporate rules approved, you have to go through an arduous process under the lead supervision of one of the European data protection authorities. So an immediate question that arises is what is the status of binding corporate rules that have gone through the UK approval process, particularly those which are on the way through it but haven't finished? In the short term to medium term, companies are also likely to, continue to, are likely to try and rely upon the European Commission model clauses. And this is essentially a standard form contract that allows a European data controller to transfer data to a company outside the EU. But the model clauses are facing a number of difficulties. First of all, they're subject to an ongoing legal challenge. So the actual continued existence of them, at least in their current form, is unclear. Secondly, they don't work in a number of scenarios. So you have to do convoluted workarounds, which takes time, costs money, and ultimately isn't satisfactory. Third of all, the model clauses themselves create unlimited liability because it is a contract. So unless you cleverly incorporate them into some other form of contract where there is a cap on liability or do something else, the counterparty in the UK is going to have unlimited liability. So you can see that parties are going to want to be negotiating around the model clauses, incorporating them into existing contracts, and essentially doing things that's going to create another layer or another obstacle to ease of business. In the longer term, or at least the medium to longer term, the UK is likely to try and get a decision from the European Commission designating the UK as having an adequate level of data protection. And if they get that adequacy decision, data can flow freely into the UK. But the question of when, or even if, the UK will get an adequacy decision is unclear. Already a number of prominent members of the European Parliament have come out strongly to say that they will lobby and be against the UK getting an adequacy decision due to the extensive investigative powers of the intelligence agencies in the UK. And even if they do get an adequacy decision, it can actually present its own difficulties for onward transfers out of the UK. So you can see that it's going to get a little bit more difficult, and there's going to be some uncertainty. And even when you've done all of that, European data protection authorities will retain the right to suspend transfers to the UK. And you also need to update all your disclosures to data subjects, so to individuals, of the fact that data is being transferred to the UK. So you need to update all your privacy policies, your consent forms, and so forth. As most of you will know, the European, uh, the European General Data Protection Regulation has recently been passed, and it's due to come into force in the next two years. And one of the objectives behind the GDPR was to make the cost of business lower, to make it more efficient to do business by only having to comply with one set of harmonized rules that automatically apply across each member state. But that opportunity of increased efficiency is gone. You're now going to have to comply with EU laws and UK laws when doing business in the UK. Also, the opportunity to, have, to structure your business so that you have a single lead data protection authority as your uh, primary contact point and regulator from a data protection perspective is also gone. You're now going to have to engage with the UK's Information Commissioner's Office. In addition, I think one of the important things you need to do is to look at your, your existing contracts and how they're going to manage the post-Brexit world. So what's going to happen when actually the UK leaves? What's your transfer mechanism for transfers to the UK? Will it be model contractual clauses? What will happen if the model contractual clauses are revoked? Or will they fall away when an adequacy decision comes into effect? How are you going to deal with the, uh, how is the UK counterparty going to deal with their liability under the model clauses? 
What rules does the UK counterparty have to comply with? Is it UK data protection law, European data protection law, or both? So you can see there's a number of things that you need to do, and we suggest and we're recommending to our clients that they start to do this now. Because if you think of these UK companies, they're going to be under significant pressure, not just from you, but from every other single company. So there's going to be significant time pressure as Brexit gets closer and closer. So I suppose just in terms of some immediate action points, what should you do? Well, when you're competing for business, I think you leverage the fact that Ireland's within the EU and that data, data transfers can be freely made to Ireland. And that applies equally when you're competing for investment within your company or to retain investment. You need to update or at least create a data export strategy so you know clearly what's happening when data goes to the UK. You'll also need to update your contracts, as I've just mentioned, and you need to update your privacy policies and consent forms. And if that's not enough, don't forget that the GDPR is coming, so there's also a significant overhaul that you're going to need to do on your data protection compliance in any event. And with that, I'll hand over to Jerry. So thanks very much. Thank you, Rob. My name's Jared Kelly, and I'm going to talk about IP. And I'm going to highlight two issues which I think are important for Irish companies doing business in and through the UK going forward in a post-Brexit scenario. The first is in relation to protection strategies for IP rights. And secondly, how a company would go about enforcing its IP in the UK following a Brexit. Now, are we going to have an orderly and simple split between two big legal systems, as you see on the left of the slide, or something slightly more dramatic, as you might see on the right? However, I think from MHC, the message is very clear. There is no need to panic at this moment in time, because it's very likely that the UK government will see IP being very important and put in place transitional legislative measures to ensure that IP remains protected. So there will be a soft landing of sorts. Now, as one of my partners reminded you the other day, the last person to stand up for the time of potential uncertainty and doom and gloom was Bertie O'Hearn and the Irish economy took quite a number of years to recover. But I do use these words quite wisely, and let me tell you why. Let's take the four main IP rights. Trademarks, so this is for brand-centric companies such as fast-moving consumer companies. At the moment, there is a national registered trademark right, which is underpinned by an EU directive, so it's harmonized throughout the EU. And there's also an EU trademark right of unitary effect across all 28 member states soon to be 27 and possibly counting down. It will no longer apply to the United Kingdom. So what's the UK government likely to do? Well, in the short term, it's probably going to enact some legislation which will recognize EU TMs in the UK for a short period of time. There's precedent for that in that Jersey is not a member of the EU, but yet does this. But the UK economy is too big to have that as a long-term solution. And why is that? Well, effectively, you would have a huge economy with UK national rights and EU trademarks that are applicable, but neither could knock each other out in a case of a conflict. The UK mark wouldn't be part of the EU, so it couldn't oppose or invalidate the EU trademark, and the market wouldn't work. So what's going to happen in the longer term is what I'm dubbing the Irish solution to the UK Brexit problem, in that when Ireland had its own Brexit of sorts in 1921, when it left the UK, it implemented legislation which allowed UK trademark owners to file an Irish trademark application within a period of time and on payment of a fee and retain the original filing or priority date of that UK application. So it's very likely that's what the UK government is going to do here. Now, there are over a million EUTMs, so it's certainly not going to be an easy task, 
But the message to business is there's no need to do anything now because if you file a national application in the UK, you will get a filing date of today or tomorrow, whenever it may be. You should wait and see what the transitional provisions look like and avail of the priority from that. Sorry, in respect of designs, again, this is for companies that create things we like to look at. So furniture or the wheels on a car. Again, there are national design rights and a registered community design right. That's likely to be dealt with in the very same way through transitional measures as it was done in Ireland. Let's take copyright for the creative industries, artists, and companies that develop software and apps, where copyright is really important to protect their main business asset. That's probably the least affected of all the main IP rights following Brexit. And the reason is quite simple. It's an unregistered right, so there won't be a shift towards registration at a UK national level. And the international treaty obligations of the UK, which aren't EU-based, will dictate that it must continue to recognize copyright on a reciprocal basis. So Irish-created works, such as software, will continue to be protected in the UK because they would be protected here. The main difference in respect of copyright would probably be that the laws will deviate over time. Obviously, the UK outside the EU will no longer be bound by the Court of Justice, so the UK Supreme Court will be dealt with and dealing with cases more regularly. And the harmonization projects that the Commission undertakes, such as in the digital single market, won't apply to the UK going forward. So there is the potential for copyright laws to deviate between the jurisdictions. Finally, with patents, for companies that invent things such as the Dyson vacuum cleaner or pharmaceutical companies who have drug portfolios that are protected by patents. This is the least harmonized area of IP at an EU level. The European Patent Convention is not an EU instrument. It applies to 30-odd signatories. That will be business as normal. It has already harmonized patent law amongst member states to a large degree. And you can just file for a European patent at the EPO designating the UK in the normal way. However, the Unified Patent Project, which is a real political effort to bring in an EU-wide patent right, will significantly be delayed. It was meant to come into force potentially next year. The UK, as one of the largest filers of patents in the EU, was one of the three states that must actually ratify it before it could come into effect, so that's really going to delay things. Secondly, the Unified Patents Court, which was going to come about as a unified court system to deal with the EU patent, that London had one of the three central divisions of that court, so it was going to deal with pharmaceutical and biotech disputes around the EU in total. But as we've seen in the media recently, a number of member states have started a land grab to try and take dibs on which EU institutions they're going to take from the UK, and this one is probably also going to be in the firing line. So finally, in respect of enforcement, let's take a scenario where we have an Irish company with an EU trademark, and it's being infringed in Ireland, the United Kingdom, Netherlands, Belgium, France, you name it. And it's a Dutch company that's infringing. At the moment, under the Brussels regulation, the EU trademark regulation, you can take an action where the infringer is domiciled in the Netherlands and get pan-European relief. You get an injunction in the Dutch courts which apply throughout the EU, and you can get damages throughout the EU. With Brexit, you're going to have to rely on the UK national trademark right in the UK national courts. So it's going to lead to a multiplicity of proceedings and the added cost. In addition, one of the results 
is that you're going to have the potential divergence in law. So how a factual matrix would be decided by a court in Ireland as a member of the EU and how it may be decided in the UK, who's no longer a member of the EU, may deviate over time. Another issue from the enforcement perspective is in respect of customs. At the moment, you can file an application on a pan-EU basis, and any counterfeit goods that come into the jurisdiction uh, will be stopped. For the UK, as no longer a member of the EU, you'll have to file a national application, which will again lead to further administration and further cost. So to conclude, the main implications uh, from Brexit is you don't need to panic, but you will need to take proactive steps as companies to ensure that your IP rights are protected. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Good morning. I'm Wendy Hederman. I'm a commercial contracts partner in Mason, Hayes and Curran. The main questions our clients are asking as regards their commercial contracts are, firstly, what do I need to do? What can I do right now? And secondly, what should I be doing or addressing in the longer term? As a starting point, the legal enforceability of current contracts will generally continue. I mean, there has been talk of invoking force majeure clauses or the doctrine of frustration to exit current contracts, but in my experience, there'd be very limited instances where the vote 10 days ago will of itself uh, give rise to cause a termination of an existing contract. I mean, it's not impossible, for force majeure, the performance of that contract would earn frustration for it to be rendered impossible. Uh, and that I haven't come across as yet. I mean, the main short-term or immediate impact on contracts has been the economic uncertainty and currency fluctuations. And this can be very significant, very real for some companies. Contracts, particularly fixed price contracts, may have a price variation mechanism where a supplier's costs are materially and adversely affected by external events. Or you may have a particular clause to deal with currency fluctuations. I mean, if not, the supplier who's adversely affected by cost increases will have to look at other remedies, managing his costs, uh, managing his, his supply chain, and also looking at when is his first sort of renegotiation or, or exit opportunity. But moving beyond the immediate impact with the dust settling a little, what can you do? I mean, I think it's important that companies assess their existing contractual relationships and also plan for changes that are needed in their future contracts. I mean, I could recommend, and, and, and certainly we would recommend to some clients that you audit all your existing contracts. But I mean, I've been in-house counsel for 10 years and I know that it may be unlikely that you'd be able to audit all of them. So let's analyze it logically. You need to prioritize your material long-term contracts. And by long-term, I mean those with a duration or term that extends beyond the date on which Britain may leave the EU. Because any current contract that expires before uh, or terminates before Britain leaves the EU will have less risk. I mean, those pre-Brexit, if you like, contracts will generally continue. And of course, the UK continues to be subject to e EU law. They're, Britain's legally obliged to respect free movement of goods, services, people. So they have less risk for you. But it's the long-term contracts um, which will have more difficulty, cause more disruption, and uh, also looking at the profitability of those contracts. I mean, as we know from what we've heard in the papers and what we know ourselves from the main tenets of EU law, the obstacles that will arise are things like introduction of 
tariffs, quotas, other restrictions to trade, the impact on free movement of services, and specifically financial services, which Fiona will be addressing later, um, and difficulties such as transfer of data that uh, Rob mentioned. I mean, so what can you do about these? So this is if you have an existing long-term contract, you want, of course, check, do I have a termination right or an opportunity to refer to termination so that I can uh, enter into some sort of renegotiation. If it's, of course, if it's a contract of indefinite duration, under Irish and English law, those contracts can be terminated on reasonable notice, which you may not want to terminate, but it is, again, your opportunity to have that negotiation. If it's fixed term without any chance of termination, well, then I think you are looking at your force majeure clause. And while the vote, the outcome of the vote itself 10 days ago may not be a force majeure, the UK actually leaving the EU could well be a force majeure event. And some force majeure clauses, depending on how they're drafted, will, of course, have a change in law or government action uh, specifically called out as a force majeure event. You look at can you invoke or construe a change request process uh, to give you some relief in relation to exit impacts, or you know, looking for other leverage that you can use at key times. But if we move now to the future contracts, I mean, I think this is probably the most important area for you. As in-house counsel, you have the opportunity within this, what we call the Article 50 window, um, to future-proof your contracts, you know, to protect your organization from the more significant impacts of Brexit. So, you know, in the next two years, for every new contract, every renewal, every extension, every variation of an existing contract, you should be looking to uh, proof it for Brexit. The, I mean, this will be very specific or tailored to your organization and to the particular uh, performance obligations uh, that you have and your particular circumstances. But as a general checklist, you, you could work from this. And we will send um, all of these slides and the materials uh, that are sent to you after this uh, call. So governing law. You know, currently English law is popular in contracts, even when neither of the parties is based in the UK. But once the UK is no longer a member, when the treaties shall cease to apply, in the words of Article 50, that's in your pack, um, English law won't be as attractive. And in fact, we're already seeing that that um, change in governing law, that, sorry, governing law has been switched from English to Irish in contracts I've been dealing with over the last uh, 10 days. Um, and Irish law, I think, is an obvious choice because common law jurisdiction within the EU um, and in English, I think that will become more attractive. Jurisdiction, clearly you need to think about English courts. You've got a judgment from an English court. It would be more, likely to be more difficult to enforce that across the rest of Europe, and I think that um, must be a consideration. Under performance obligations, very business-specific, you know, the kind of things, if, if performance of the contract depends on having an EU-wide passport for the provision of financial services, whether that's into the UK or out of the UK, clearly you need to manage that scenario in your contract. If, if the performance of the contract requires you to be able to send staff to work in the UK, some people, IT experts on secondment, um, if you have maybe a data center um, or a customer call center in the UK, for which you need to be able to send um, data, personal data from Ireland, you're going to have a problem there. Territoriality, clearly, you need to be very clear in your documents if it says EU, is that EU with Britain in or Britain out? Uh, make sure you specify that. We've talked about termination events, um, variation of terms 
or pricing. Clearly, this is all part of your contingency planning. What are the specific events that you need to be looking for? And it may be that you would have that the termination event, the trigger is a particular scenario arising out of the EU exit. You know, if that's that the UK ceases to be a member of the EEA, uh, or, you know, if they're in WTO terms. Reference to statutes, you need to be looking and thinking about what UK laws are referred to in your template contracts and also in your more generally ap apply or affect the contract. I mean, if I had a long-term outsourcing contract with employees in the UK and at the moment that contract said on termination, UK two-pay rules or regs will apply, I would want to now be dealing with and clarifying, renegotiating that so that I knew that on termination what would happen to them because I needed to be accounting for redundancy payments or reallocating that risk. It's the sort of thing that you do in that Article 50 window. Uh, and clearly, force majeure clauses will need to be very carefully tailored so that you know what are the impacts and what are the consequences. Because if you enter into a contract in a year's time, to my mind, the UK exiting from the UK exiting from the EU is probably a reasonably foreseeable event and that will have consequences for a lot of the standard FM clauses, so you need to be wording them very carefully. So do please use this as the Article 50 window to be uh, very carefully considering those contracts in your specific uh, business context, and we'll send you the checklist later. Thank you. I'm Niall Collins. I'm head of competition and antitrust at, at Mason Hayes. I think most eyes at the moment are firmly focused on London. So initially, I just want to divert our attention a little bit down Louisiana way. Um, if you've ever been down in Louisiana, you may have encountered a bayou. Now, bayous are difficult to navigate, and they typically have a really poorly defined shoreline. I think the UK, from a competition perspective, is sailing into completely uncharted waters here. There ain't any shoreline in sight just yet. In terms of another visit to Louisiana, you may have grabbed some gumbo at some stage. Now, gumbo is, is tasty as hell. And gumbo, like our Brexit musings this morning, it's just got something for everyone in it. I'm not going to be able to focus on them all this morning. But I'm a competition cook, and there's lots of competition cooks out there. So my recipe this morning has got three main ingredients. I'm going to talk to you about merger control, where potentially we're going to see the most change. I'm going to touch then briefly on the state aid regime, and then I'm going to wrap up on privilege. But before I do that, one introductory remark, which is absolutely key to the future of the UK competition landscape post-Brexit. Everything will depend on what model the UK decides to choose to govern its relationship with the EU post-Brexit. There are a wide number of options. For example, the UK may decide to join the EEA, accede to the EEA agreement. This would involve the least amount of change from a competition perspective. There are relatively detailed rules dealing with competition in the EEA agreement, Articles 24 to 30, Annex 14 protocols, towards the end of the agreement. Will this be acceptable to the Brexiteers? Probably not, not particularly palatable. Um, more like a soft Brexit or, or renegotiation. The, the, the list goes on. Um, another option is joining the WTO and being bound by and applying the WTO rules. There's not a specific competition regime, 
under WTO rules. There is, however, something which looks broadly akin to the EU state aid regime. That's an option. I think, thirdly, a full Brexit would involve the most amount of change uh, from a competition law perspective. But again, as the Swiss have done, you're quite entitled to negotiate a multitude of bilateral agreements with the EU. So a number of options. My own view is that UK competition law has for a long time been modelled on the EU rules. I don't think we're going to see radical change. I think we're going to see some tweaks around the edges, but not radical change. I don't think the fundamentals are going to change. I'll explain what I mean uh, in a second. So as I said, three main ingredients to our gumbo this morning. Firstly, a merger control. At the moment, the EU operates a one-stop shop regime. What that means, in essence, is that if you trigger EU jurisdiction, i.e. the thresholds that are set out in the European Union merger regulation are met, um, you only need to make a notification to the EU. The assessment and clearance of that particular merger um, applies throughout the EU. There are reference back provisions which are relevant, but at the moment, that is a regime which competition lawyers like, because to give a practical example, we acted for McKesson when they acquired UDG Healthcare not so long ago. That triggered EU jurisdiction, and we found ourselves with the Commission in Brussels. Um, Post-Brexit, if the one-stop shop doesn't apply, it, it would be almost certain that we would be required to make an EU notification and also a UK notification. And you might say, well, it's just an extra notification, but it's not. Because the UK operates probably one of the most complex merger control regimes. The Competition and Markets Authority are one of the most involved and aggressive regulators. Um, the filing fees, for example, to file in the UK are considerable. They range from £40,000 to £160,000. The filing fee in Ireland is €8,000. There's no filing fee that applies at European level. Um, it is a relatively complex regime, difficult to navigate. So if there is a message to be taken back to the powers that be within your, your respective companies, that is to keep an eye on the possibility that post-Brexit you will now have to consider UK merger control in addition to EU merger control. I think my own view is that the, the UK operates at the moment a voluntary regime, and it's happy to do that because effectively, when it sees transactions being notified at European level, it can claim them back through the, for example, Article 9 reference procedure. So it's got an eye on things, but post-Brexit, um, the, EU, the UK was, will be no longer entitled to be consulted uh, on mergers which may affect uh, its territory and find themselves with the, the EU uh, alone. Turning to state aid, I'm sure you're broadly familiar with the way the state aid regime operates. Effectively, the rules apply to, as it says, public interventions in the market to ensure effectively they don't distort competition through selective measures which favor one undertaking over another. Be very familiar with the various state aid uh, involvement uh, that Ireland has had um, through the financial crisis and bailout of our banks, which all, the majority of which at least involved uh, state intervention. More recently, i.e. yesterday, uh, the European Commission published two very nice cases, one dealing with Spain, one dealing with um, the Netherlands, um, where they picked up on privileges to various second-tier football clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona, Effectively, they were being treated as non-profit organizations in Spain, such that they paid a 25% rate of tax rather than 
a higher 30% of tax, that's been struck down. Um, the problem with losing the EU state aid regime is that Britain, potentially, in the future, could decide to favour national champions. It could, for example, decide to help out its, its ailing steel industry. So sounds good, or as they say down Louisiana way, uh, laissez les bons temps rouler, let the good times roll, um, in terms of the way the UK might do things in the future. I don't think that's going to happen, because if they decide to just disregard the state aid rules, there will be a degree of retaliation from EU member states which say that's just not going to happen, uh, increase subsidies, trade subsidies, etc. One final point, and, and the most interesting point, obviously, from a competition nerd's perspective, um, legal professional privilege um, applies, as you know, to advice given by external and independent EEA qualified lawyers. To give one example, um, when we conduct cartel investigations representing our clients um, who find themselves involved in, in, in the mess the cartel investigations effectively are, um, all correspondence between us and our clients are obviously protected by privilege. Um, one of the most obvious uh, outputs from Brexit is that we are being asked by colleagues in the UK to give them a reference for admission to the Irish Bar. Effectively, what they're doing is ensuring that A, they maintain the rights of audience at European level before the courts. They are also ensuring, however, that when their clients say, is everything you say to me protected by privilege, they can say, yes, I'm EEA qualified. Um, and that is a step that people are taking, or lawyers are taking, to mitigate um, the, risks, the risks of Brexit. So hopefully, um, as this is an area which I think will involve the least amount of change, the uh, shoreline of the competition, Bayou, is potentially a, a little bit easier uh, to find. And, and with that, I'll hand you over to my uh, tax partner, John Gulliver, who's going to talk about a different one-stop shop. I thought I had a monopoly on one-stop shops, but John is uh, going to change that, so thank you. Thanks, Niall. Um, I run the tax practice at Mason Hayes and Curran, and we focus on overseas businesses investing in Ireland. So that's going to be the primary focus of my talk today and the opportunities that Brexit may bring. But I think, to start off with, we have to just focus on some of the threats um, clearly, George Osborne on Monday was very quick in coming out about the 15% corporation tax rate in Ireland. Um, Ireland has lost its main ally in defending the right to um, no minimum tax rate, and we don't have an ally to protect against a common consolidated tax base. So later on during the talk, I, I will mention some possible ideas to keep Ireland competitive. But really now, turning to the opportunities that Brexit holds. And the reason I mention opportunities is that everybody's spoken about the unknown so far today. And the one thing which is certain is between now and last Friday morning, nothing's changed. And from a tax perspective, that's important. The UK is still in the EU. Its tax laws haven't changed. Ireland's tax laws haven't changed. So against the background of that, it's possible to take steps to minimise the risks that Brexit brings and the uncertainty. And one such one would be the VAT one-stop shop. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with it, but the one-stop VAT shop is an arrangement whereby you register for VAT with one revenue authority. So if, for example, you're making e-commerce sales from the UK, B2C, 
to multiple consumers through the EU. You register with the UK revenue and administer the pan-European VAT through the UK revenue. Well, clearly, in two years, maybe three, maybe four, five, but at some point, the UK will exit Brexit. That facility is most unlikely to be available. So why do you want the disruption of waiting for the UK? Should you not consider, why not have the e-commerce run through an Irish hub? Why not have the e-commerce being administered from a one-stop shop in Ireland? Plenty of companies already do it. It's an opportunity. You need to start considering, is there a possibility of moving such activities to Ireland? In, and the method by which you uh, move activities might be a cross-border merger. Um, in 2008, the EU introduced regulations to facilitate cross-border mergers between two companies incorporated in different EU jurisdictions. They can be upstream, so I think we've got quite a number of bankers here. You'll be aware of the Bank of Scotland, Ireland upstream merger. And there's plenty of downstream as well, downstream where you go from one EU country into Ireland. Um, both can occur. The, tr the transfer, the transferee company is automatically dissolved. But what happens as a matter of law is all the assets and liabilities transfer without the need for multiple assignment contracts and importantly in liabilities, novation contracts. It's a court approved process. It takes about six months, so you need to plan now. But again, an example might be a cross-border merger there. On the left, you've got um, UK merging into Ireland. It leaves Ireland alone there. But it, interestingly, by doing that, let's assume the UK was a distribution centre and you wish to merge it into the Irish, you could do it by cross-border merger. And the unique facility of all the liabilities transferring mean you don't have to engage with the customer base occurs by operation of law. Um, and that really brings me on to my third opportunity in that clearly where you've got, say, a US multinational, where you did have a UK intermediate holding company by cross-border merging or other means, you could end up with an Irish holding company. Why would you want an Irish holding company rather than a UK company? Well, it's very straightforward. Post-Brexit, the UK will not be part of a group for EU purposes. There's various EU tax laws which enable group, um, group payments, for example, payments made by subsidiaries to parent to occur free of withholding tax. So you want to pull a dividend up from your Italian sub or from your German subsidiary under the parent subsidiary directive, they come up gross. Post-Brexit, that certainty won't be there. You might be able to rely on the double tax treaties but you've got certainty, so does it really make sense to have a UK whole co? And in that scenario, um, similarly, so that, similarly there's a uh, royalties and interest directive and various other directives where you can share losses and the like around EU groups. So UK being a whole co uh, beneath a US parent probably doesn't make sense. Um, you could, uh, by way of cross-border merger or indeed a sale. If you sold the EU subsidiaries to uh, an Irish holding company, you probably avail of UK participation privilege, which is now apparent, but might change. So there's ways you can reorganize your group. Um, 
So in summary, no changes to no changes to tax law yet. There is a possibility to plan. I highlighted earlier that there will be changes, and one of the things Ireland needs to also consider is the benefit of changes now, and this thing won't go back. So I just mentioned on my first slide the possibility of changes to the Irish tax regime for holding companies. The UK has an exemption for foreign dividends. We don't, we tax. We would probably need to change that to an exemption now. Expect changes, whether it happens November or later, who knows, but we need to make changes. Um, there was a big consultation period for anyone who's in the technology sector, share-based remuneration to um, change the taxation, as you know, share-based remuneration is taxed at the marginal income tax rate. Would it not make sense to tax it at the capital gains tax rate? So Ireland will need to make changes as well to its tax regime, but for now, we need to look at our opportunities. Without further ado, I'm going to pass on to, um, and bearing in mind what's happening later on tonight, number seven, as now mentioned, Real Madrid, the Ronaldo of the financial services industry. Pinon Brannock. Thank you. Well, thanks for that introduction in particular, uh, John. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Finon Brannock, and I lead the investment funds and financial regulation practice at Mason, Hayes & Curran. Um, the single biggest issue arising from Brexit in the financial sector is uncertainty now as regards the UK's role in the single European market for financial services. So we're going to look at a couple of the headline implications of Brexit for the financial services sector. And maybe I'm going to suggest, arising from dialogue that we're already having with uh, some clients, some suggested solutions to some of those implications. Um, and the context of this uh, is, and I'm sure most of you are aware of this, certainly those of you working in the international financial services sector, is that uh, the single European market for financial services has been a cornerstone of the European agenda for the last couple of decades. And it operates on the basis of a mutual recognition of licenses. So a financial institution can establish in one EU jurisdiction, obtain its regulatory license there, and then passport that license throughout the entire European market. And by doing so, Financial institutions in sectors such as banking, insurance, asset management, investment funds, payment services, etc., can access uh, the entire single European market from one base. Uh, the UK Brexit referendum result now creates uncertainty as regards the UK's role in that um, single financial market. So let me give you some examples uh, of some of the headline implications, uh, starting first with the broader financial services sector. Um, so financial institutions that are currently headquartered in the UK, that are using their UK as their base, using their FCA license um, as the license uh, to passport throughout the EU, um, their ability now uh, post-Brexit to access the European market from a UK base is now uh, called into question. Um, and in fact, until such time as the exact terms of the UK's exit uh, from the EU have been agreed, there's going to be an immediate impact of a number of years of uncertainty for those financial institutions. The um, corollary of that uh, then is looking at financial institutions that are located in other EU jurisdictions 
that are using their passport to passport into the UK. For example, any Irish uh, licensed uh, banks or insurance companies that are passporting into the UK. And there can be a question now as to how they are going to access the European market, or sorry, access the UK market uh, under that passport. In worst case scenario, the market may be severely restricted for them. Uh, in the best case scenario, uh, the UK uh, will make sure that there won't be any significant impact to those types of financial institutions from accessing the UK market. Uh, my own view of it is that the UK will uh, engineer a situation where there will be minimal disruption um, for non-UK financial institutions accessing the UK market. The UK has a history of being a very open market uh, and willing to facilitate uh, access to its market for financial services institutions. In the investment funds sector, um, for Irish domiciled usage funds, I think the biggest impact is going to be for those funds that have a UK-based uh, usage management company. So under usage rules, if an Irish domiciled usage fund uh, is to appoint an external usage management company, that management company has to be licensed uh, in the EU. And post-Brexit, UK usage management companies will no longer qualify for that appointment. So Irish domiciled usage are need to, they're going to need to look at structural solutions for that. The most immediately apparent ones being uh, source or um, uh, domicile a usage management company in another EU jurisdiction, such as Ireland, or uh, convert the fund to being a self-managed usage fund. Um, there's a similar issue for Irish domiciled alternative investment funds, or AFES, where they've got a UK-based alternative investment fund manager, or AIFM. Um, they're going to need, similarly, to look at structural options and structural alternatives, which, of course, will include looking at sourcing or establishing an AIFM in another jurisdiction other than the UK, such as Ireland, again, or converting into being a self-managed uh, AFE. The marketing implications for usage funds and for uh, alternative investment funds will vary slightly. The usage passport attaches to the usage fund product itself, whereas under AIFMD, the uh, AIFMD pan-European passport attaches to the management company of um, the, the uh, fund product. So for Irish domiciled usage, um, there's likely to be minimal impact um, as a result of Brexit because Irish domiciled usage are still going to benefit from their European passport, with the one exception uh, in terms of impact, which is if the Irish domiciled usage is heavily dependent on distribution into the UK, um, the future of that uh, is just going to be a little bit uncertain for the moment, but again, I expect the UK um, won't cause uh, any major difficulties for the future passporting of foreign funds uh, into that market. Uh, under AIFMD, as I said, the passport attaches to the manager, so again, we're back in a situation where an Irish domiciled AFE may have appointed a UK-based um, management company that post-Brexit won't benefit from 
the AIFMD passport. So similar structuring options are going to need to be considered. Um, Irish funds are also going to need to look at their investment policies and their investment mandates to the extent that any EU-related investment parameters uh, exist. So the immediate example is USITS funds are prohibited from investing more than 30% of their assets in non-USITS uh, collective investment schemes. So to the extent that we have an Irish domiciled USITS that has some exposure to underlying UK-based USITS, that investment mandate is going to need to be reassessed uh, once the UK leaves the EU. The key message, really, um, is that interaction um, in the financial services sector um, to the extent that it extends to the UK uh, is going to be disrupted. Um, now is the time, really, for assessing and for planning for the implications uh, of Brexit for your own organisations. And without a doubt, it is an opportunity for general counsel in international financial institutions to be thought leaders and to shape the strategy for your organisations. Um, we're already working with a number of clients uh, in the financial services sector to try to mitigate the risk, to try to put in place contingency plans. And one thing that is emerging from all of these discussions is that a key driver in the decision-making is the current and the future distribution strategy of the institution. So whether that's a bank passporting its services and its products um, throughout the EU, or whether it's a fund manager passporting and distributing funds throughout the EU, it really will boil down to what is the distribution strategy. And there are a number of options available. Um, and central to the discussions that we're having with our clients is the dialogue around shifting their center of gravity away from the UK and over to Ireland. And certainly that is a compelling option. Uh, Post-Brexit, we're going to be the only e e um, English-speaking common law jurisdiction in the EU. And that, together with our uh, well-established and highly respected international financial services sector offering, uh, certainly places, places us in a strong position to offer um, that solution. Uh, one message that you might consider bringing back uh, to your organizations is that the central bank was on record as early as March of this year in publicly stating uh, that it was preparing for a potential Brexit. It was resourcing up for what might be some degree of increase in terms of licensing applications uh, in the financial services sector. Um, so I will leave it at that. I'll hand over to Melanie, uh, who is going to talk to us about implications for employment law. Thank you. My name is Melanie Crowley, and I'm one of the partners in the employment team, uh, the employment and benefits team. I am going to be brief because I don't believe there are going to be wholesale changes to employment laws uh, post-Brexit. But what I do believe is that the single biggest Brexit-related issue from an employer's perspective is and will be the free movement of workers. And I think that arises in two contexts for our purposes. The free movement of workers as between us in Ireland and our nearest neighbour and biggest trading partner, the UK, and the free movement of workers in and around the European Union. Um, and just to put some of this in context, in 2014, 
the British government issued 17,000 new national insurance numbers to Irish nationals entering the workforce in the UK. 17,000 new national insurance numbers. That's on top of the hundreds of thousands of Irish nationals already working in the UK. And the flow of traffic isn't all one way. In the same year, the Irish government issued 15,000 new PPS numbers to UK nationals entering the workforce in Ireland. So for the purposes of your organizations, what do you need to do now? What would I recommend you do now? I think you need to look at the number of non-UK nationals your organizations employ in the UK. And I also think you need to look at the number of UK nationals your organizations employ in Ireland and throughout the broader European Union. Because a time may very well come, and, and this is subject to the type of arrangement that Britain ends up with, as Niall alluded to, but a time may very well come where non-UK nationals in the UK require permission to work in, in some form of a work permit, and likewise where UK nationals need permission to work in Ireland and uh, throughout the broader European Union. And those applications for permission to work, whatever form of work permit they take, they bring with them an administration issue, a timing issue, a cost issue. So what I would urge you to do now is to look at your business's strategic plans, which you're all doing anyway, and we are doing anyway, um, but, but factor into your considerations of your strategic plans and of your business expansion plans the fact that there will be limits on the movement of workers in and out of the UK. And I think that's something that requires some thought now. It requires a consideration of the status quo and it requires a consideration of what you think might happen or what you would like to happen in the future. There's one other thing that I want to mention um, uh, from an employment and benefits perspective, and that is the issue of cross-border pensions. Um, what is a cross-border pension? A cross-border pension is a pension that is hosted or based in one EU member state, but has beneficiaries in another or several other European Union states. Um, of all of the cross-border pensions which exist, one-third of those are hosted or based out of Ireland, but another third of them are hosted out of the UK. These are set up under European Union legislation which will cease to apply in the UK post-Brexit. So what do you need to do? Do you need to unwind the pension in the UK if that's where it's hosted? Not necessarily, but what you will need to do is to consider moving the host location from the UK to one of the other European Union states. Now, the reason I'm flagging that now is that is something that will take at least 12 to 18 months to set up, to organize, and to administer. And even with moving your UK host cross-border pension to another member state, you still need to consider what's going to happen those employees who are remaining in the UK. Will you need to set up a new pension scheme over there? 
we're in a situation of auto enrollment in the UK now, so it's not just simply a case that you can close up your pension tent in the UK and sail off into the distance. So two things that merit consideration now in the context of what's going to happen over the next couple of years, and that is a consideration of your strategic plans and the status quo in terms of UK nationals working in Ireland or throughout the European Union or Irish or other European Union nationals working in the UK and also a consideration of any cross-border pensions that you might have hosted out of the UK and also obviously um, any employees who are participate or benefit from cross-border pension schemes whether they're hosted here or somewhere else in the European Union. Thank you Melanie. Uh, my name is Owen Cassidy. I'm a partner in uh, Mason Hayes and Kearns Energy Practice and I'm going to talk to you about uh, why Brexit is relevant uh, for, the, for the Irish energy industry. So the first point really is, why is that the case? Um, as, you, as you might know, the island of Ireland operates a single electricity market. So there's a common wholesale electricity market north and south of the border. There's also an east-west interconnector for electricity between Ireland and Wales. There's a planned north-south uh, interconnector uh, between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Uh, there are two subsea pipelines connecting the island of Ireland and Great Britain and a, a south-north pipeline between Ireland and Northern Ireland carrying gas. So there's codependence uh, between Ireland and the UK from an energy perspective, with the majority of the flows of the interconnectors coming from the United Kingdom into Ireland. Like, like Niall mentioned earlier, um, we don't really know what the impact is going to be on Ireland until we see what model the UK and the EU agree post-Brexit. And that's going to determine the impact. And the primary question is, from an energy perspective, is whether or not the UK remains committed to the internal energy market. So Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, they all participate uh, in that market as members uh, of the e EFTA. Switzerland is also negotiating an energy agreement uh, with the EU which would regulate electricity trading and secure free uh, market access and membership to certain energy market committees. So the opportunities are there for the UK to participate if it chooses to do so. And we think uh, it's, it's likely, given the interconnection between the UK and Europe, not just with Ireland, that they would maintain a consistent approach uh, to energy matters. They'd continue to liberalize and develop cross-border markets. So we don't think there's going to be major changes to the current systems and regulations in the short to medium term. But we do think that there are issues that you need to be aware of in the event that Brexit occurs. So the first one is, is looking at um, what potential impact Brexit may have on Ireland's interconnectivity. So Ireland's connectivity uh, of its energy market with other markets is becoming more and more important as we move away from a reliance on imported fossil fuels and further develop our renewable generation capacity. We need to consider the potential impact of Brexit on planned interconnection projects, if any, um, uh, and what the impact may be on future projects. So what I've put up there is projects of common interest. Um, you may or may not be aware of them, but these are projects which are identified by the European Commission as being key infrastructure projects which help deliver Europe's energy and climate objectives and form key building blocks to the EU's energy union. They effectively assist intra-EU connectivity and security of supply. 
So these projects are supported by the EU through designated fast-track planning processes, and some cases through financial commitments from funds like the Connecting Europe facility, the CEF, and the European Fund for Strategic Investment. And, and these funds in the last two years have allocated approximately 800 million euro to help co-finance studies and construction works to implement these projects of common interest. So all of the currently designated projects of common interest are for projects which improve connections for EU member states and improve security of supply. And there are a number of Irish projects which are identified in the current list which relate to UK connections. And it's not clear at this stage how these projects are going to be affected, affected by Brexit, as one of the requirements uh, for a project to be designated as a project of common interest is that it has a significant impact on at least two EU member states. What is clear, at the, we, we think, at this point is there will be an increased importance on the interconnection of Ireland and the continent in a post-Brexit environment. So uh, an increased importance on projects like the Celtic Interconnector is to, to connect to Ireland and France. And, we, and, and, and it may be the case, and it is probably likely, there'll be a lower importance placed on projects which just merely improve interconnection between Ireland and the UK, unless they are serving an additional purpose. Sorry, the next point is, the next point is related, and that's um, security of gas supply. So the, the current gas arrangements between Ireland and the UK are governed by intergovernmental agreements, and we don't think they are likely to change. But in accordance with the security of gas supply regulations, Ireland and the UK currently have a joint preventative action for natural gas emergencies and shortage of supply. If the UK were to leave the EU, then Ireland's security of supply plan may be called into question, as Ireland would be relying on the assistance of a non-EU country in relation to security of supply, and the current regulations uh, refer only to member states cooperating with other member states in terms of identifying and, 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 and coming up with a plan. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility uh, that, to say that Ireland may be obliged to invest in other methods of securing supplies of natural gas. And it's potentially the case that these such projects or plans could be considered for and obtain projects of common interest status or other EU support. And thirdly, I've put up pricing and demand. I mean, this is, this is pure, pure speculation, which, which is probably correct for the morning that's in it. But um, if the UK were to change um, energy policies, including, say, the introduction of carbon pricing, emissions trading, adjusting their supports for renewables, um, or if you ended up with the potential implementation of cross-border tariffs in the event they were no longer participating in the internal uh, energy market, um, these could all potentially have an impact on electricity pricing and energy pricing generally, as well as demand for energy, which again could, place, uh, could have an impact on the planned export of power from the Ireland of Ireland to the UK and beyond. It'd be remiss not to talk about the single electricity market and ISEM and, and what our thoughts are on that, but, but we don't really see any change to the all-Ireland electricity market in the short to medium term. The implementing legislation supporting it is not affected by Brexit. We also wouldn't expect to change the implementation of the integrated single electricity market, which is currently on track. However, we would flag a note of caution. If there's no EU imperative to drive this model forward, and it is implementing a European target model, it may be the case that the Northern Irish appetite for, uh, for the implementation um, may be waned. However, we think given that it moves towards a, a UK model, it will be implemented in the medium to long term in any event. So what should you do as a lawyer uh, involved in the energy industry in Ireland? 
Uh, well, the first thing I'd say is don't panic. We, we don't see any change in the short to medium term that is likely to, to disrupt or interfere with business on a day-to-day -day basis. For parties that are investing in, um, in, the, in UK energy projects in a post-Brexit environment, it's important to know that the Energy Charter Treaty would still apply as UK, the UK would remain a party to that treaty. However, further bilateral agreements um, and investment treaties would be required between the UK and the EU uh, so that parties can continue to rely on the investor protection that they've enjoyed to date. Uh, as Wendy pointed out, it's important that you would review any cross-border contracts to determine any impact in the event of Brexit, particularly those contracts which are to endure for more than a two-year period from now, and uh, identify whether any of those contracts are relying on um, EU secondary legislation. If you are relying on EU grants or financing, such as the projects of common interest type funding we were talking about, or, or uh, European Investment Bank funding, it's important that you look at the terms of that financing and th those grants right now to consider whether there is a potential impact um, in the event of Brexit. But remember, don't panic. Now, I, on that note, I'll pass you over to John O'Hearn, the, the anchor man of this morning's session, the, the Usain Bolt, I suppose. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, uh, Declan and the team, for uh, inviting me along to speak to you this morning. Um, I was slated for 10 minutes, uh, but I know that we have a tight time schedule, and as Declan predicted, I'll probably end up with two minutes, but that's okay. I don't want to cut into the question and answer time. I've been out of Ireland a very long time, 20-odd uh, years, but I'm very glad I kept my Irish passport, I can tell you, um, because I don't know when I'm going to need a visa um, to, to come and go. Um, and after this, I don't know whether I might chat to Declan or Funon about a job, but we'll see. Um, I think a few points from me, from a UK perspective. Firstly, as everybody I think has alluded to, it's very early days and there is no cause for panic. That's, I think, the first thing to bear in mind. Um, from my perspective and from speaking to the Bank of England, to the FCA, to the PRA and to clients, there is no real expectation to date that the UK market is going to change markedly from what it is today. I'm a financial services lawyer, so my focus tends to be the financial markets, which, as Fionn alluded to, are very open under Article 72 of our regulated activities order. It's very easy to do business into London, very easy to get access to the UK market, which is a massive infrastructure. And out of all the banks that operate in the UK, a considerable number of them operate as branches of third country firms. So what does that tell you? What it tells you is they're there to access the market infrastructure in London and not necessarily the rest of Europe. And another thing I would say is that the primary business driver for many of the banks and other financial institutions in the UK is access to the institutional client base. And even with European directives and regulations that seek to harmonize the provision of investment services and banking services throughout the union. In most countries, it's relatively easy to do business with grown-up institutional clients, interbank business, interinsurance business, and so on. Large um, listed corporates and the like are relatively easy. I'm not saying that a third country service provider can just run around Europe um, accessing who it likes, but in the main, uh, they're a relatively accessible client base. The real issue 
if Brexit happens, and by the way, again, the massive intelligence is that Britain is not going to turn its back in an isolationist way against the European Union. It simply cannot afford to do so. Neither is there an incentive for the European Union to turn its back on the British market, which is of significant importance when you look at the trade deficit between Europe and the UK. So even if the step is taken to leave whereby Britain becomes a third country, firm, or firms in Britain become third country firms, um, then the real issue will be access to the retail market. Because under MIFID II, for example, there's a closure of access to the retail client base about to come over the precipice on the 3rd of January 2018. What does that affect? That affects, um, in financial services at least, private banking businesses, private brokerage businesses, pension sales, and, the so on, and so on. And so in that sector of the market, there may be, in those circumstances, a need to shift. But what is going to substantively change in English law? Probably not a lot substantively. Don't forget that the financial regulatory system is really informed by age-old EU precepts and latterly G20 precepts. So provisions like the European Market Infrastructure, Infrastructure Regulation, for example, Basel III, implemented under CRD IV, um, lots of MIFID, um, and other regulatory uh, structural provisions are really creatures of G20 determination so that there will no, be no incentive for the UK to substantively change them. That's not to say that on Brexit there wouldn't be an enormous legislative project to be undertaken. Of course there would. But substantively, things won't be much different, in our view, than they are today. And when I talk to the big SIB banks, uh, the likes of Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and others, and ask them the question, are you, like HSBC announced, likely to make an announcement of transferring thousands of jobs to an EU country in the event that Britain comes out entirely? The answer invariably is, what do you think we're going to do, John? Don berries on half our staff and wrap a string of onions around their necks and drop them into Paris. That's just not going to work. We had this kind of uh, speculation around the time of AIFMD and the hedge fund industry. The truth is that moving people from one location to another involves a lot more considerations than just business considerations. People have families, children at school, friends, relations, and so on. So it's not that likely that you can easily handpick a bunch of people and drop them into another EU jurisdiction. And when I look at the size of the Frankfurt population, which is something in the region of 650,000, that is the number of people employed in UK financial services in London. So it's a massive, massive market compared to any potential host market. So I think the message for me is that keep an eye on it, keep looking at the developments. We're in a very, very early stage, and we're in a period of very, very difficult political uncertainty, let alone legal uncertainty. And let's see uh, where we come out. The truth is we're not going to see much development, in my estimation, between now and probably October, November of this year. It's going to be likely early next year before we really begin to see how the British negotiation stance is going to look, because one of the key drivers for um, those uh, who are um, currently in the run for leadership of the Conservative Party is to get their own ducks lined in a row before the Article 50 notification is triggered and then take it from there. So we will probably begin to see 
some policy agenda shaping up between now and later in the year. But before then, we really don't know. For the moment, there are, of course, opportunities for Ireland. There are opportunities for other EU uh, countries as well. But my message is I would not bet on the UK taking an isolationist position with the rest of Europe. I simply do not see that happening. The other point to bear in mind, of course, is that if the third largest economy in Europe <coughs> departs entirely and goes its own way, what then is the future of the European Union? What really needs to happen in the minds of many of the regulators in London and other um, stakeholders as well is a relook at the structure of the European Union as a political institution and start thinking again about whether Brexit could in fact be a trigger for Frexit, Nexit, and other potential breaking apart of the membership of the European Union. Um, I don't think, by the way, that we're going to have Brentry. I think that there's probably a considerable amount of ill will built up over the last 10 days uh, for that to be likely. But the real question is whether we are going to have Norway plus, or a Norway solution, or a Swiss solution, or a Canadian solution, we don't know, is the short answer, um, but we anticipate that the UK will participate in the single market in one guise or another uh, in the future, and that it will not uh, come out. Meanwhile, however, uh, there are some uncertainties. So, for example, if you're a bank taking collateral from a UK collateral provider, whether or not the financial collateral directive uh, provisions will still be available to avoid the um, technical registration of security interests, for example, um, will be an issue. Whether you can have access to a UK central counterparty might be an issue. Whether um, derivatives traded on a UK exchange would now be considered OTC uh, will be an issue. And there's a whole panoply of issues that arise in the circumstances that we are now in. Um, but as other speakers have said, let's keep calm, don't panic, there is not going to be a seismic shift if uh, the UK has anything to do with it as far as we consider, um, but we would just won't know until a little bit um, later on. Um, the other thing to remember is even if uh, the extreme result is uh, a total Brexit, a number of EU, at least in my field, EU regulatory provisions, now include a third country passport. AIFMD is one of them, MIFID II is another. So that it may still be possible for Britain to have access to the European single market, at least in the institutional sphere, uh, post-Brexit. Um, now that would demand an equivalence decision by the Commission, but it's hard to imagine that the UK not, would not be deemed equivalent in circumstances where all its substantive laws are EU compliant, certainly as at the date of a potential Brexit. And in that behalf, Singapore, Hong Kong, the US and Canada have been declared equivalent for certain purposes under the regulatory system. So let's see uh, what happens. Um, let's see what the opportunities are for the very, very good reasons enumerated by the speakers on the panel in your various areas, for sure, you need to be mindful of developments as they occur and reassessing your business model and your position uh, going forward. And as several have said, I think the in-house lawyers have a great role to play in that behalf in driving the shape um, of the opportunity and the way in which businesses should respond to it. So on that note, I'm going to shut up. 
and uh, hand it over to Declan, and hopefully we'll have some questions. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, John. Um, I'm going to choose the food analogy rather than the sporting analogy. Um, we've sort of approached today like a tapas party, and I hope that there was a dish or two dishes in there uh, that some of you liked. Um, just before we move to questions and answers, I just wanted to offer maybe one practical suggestion. So what we are doing is we have a Brexit legal group. You can see them. Um, and what we're trying to do in practical terms is from an organizational perspective, analyze Brexit from what are the issues specific to our business. And then secondly, the second strand of it is what are the wider issues? I think from this morning, if you had a Brexit legal group in your organization, it's quite a large menu of items uh, you would have to cover. Uh, data transfer, IP, contracts, a contract negotiation checklist uh, looking forward, tax planning, um, passporting, access to capital, access to energy. Um, so there's lots and lots of other issues, uh, employment, pension structures, and the like. So time is tight. Uh, we will take questions. Um, I had a question, and it's an employment-related question. I might just kick off with it, so it's for Melanie. It's, if I am anxious about the free movement of labor, and I'm employing, uh, I have a, an open position, and I have a UK citizen as a candidate, and an other candidate who's from a member state, um, can I discriminate? against the EU candidate now on the basis that I might have to let them go in two years? I think the answer to that, Declan, is in your question. <laughs> if you end up with two candidates and one is an Irish or an EU national and the other one is a UK national, uh, can you discriminate? The answer to that is no, uh, because that would breach our equality laws. Um, and then the next question then is, is there some kind of a justification for that discrimination? And the answer to that is, well, possibly, but there's no provision in our equality legislation or in most jurisdictions' equality legislation for, dis for that type of objective justification for a discrimination in those circumstances. So the answer to that is no, but obviously you have to be, or we all have to be mindful of what may happen down the line in terms of the free movement of people in and out of the UK. Um, and on that point, I'd also make the observation that we, we all, including Mason Hayes and Curran, look to the UK for talent. And if that talent isn't as, I won't say not readily available, but if it isn't as easy uh, for UK talent to work here in the future, what is our fallback position? Where are we going to look? And that's something that we all need to think about. Okay. Any questions from the floor? Hi. I was just wondering, when the Brexit uh, happens and EU law is disapplied as of the triggering mechanism, how does UK law stack up then? And you know, is EU, EU law still of any persuasive authority? Or how is it disentangled from some UK implementing uh, legislation? I think, John, that's one for Shall I take that one? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, as you know, the, uh, EU measures are implemented via directives or regulation. In the case of directive-led legislation, that will be on the statute books already as part of domestic law, invariably. In relation to EU regulations, which are directly applicable, there will probably be a legislative vacuum that will need to be filled. 
But like I said, we would expect that the UK would implement legislation that is pari materia with um, EU regulations affecting um, the various issues that they were intended to cover, for the most part. Um, it's very early to say whether um, the UK government would want to implement measures that cover the topic area, but are a lot lighter touch. But in doing that, they would need to weigh up how that might impact any potential equivalence decision they might need uh, from the Commission going forward. So to answer the question, EU law will probably be more than uh, persuasive. I imagine that it will be instructive as to what the replacement legislation will look like for the most part. Okay, thank you very much, uh, everyone. Thank you for coming, and I hope you enjoy the Absolutely. event. Good night.